Well, I was glad when they said unto me, let's go to the church of your youth. I'm so glad to be here this morning. I'm so glad that I get to be along with you. I'm so thankful to be in the congregation where I was born and baptized and raised. I'm so grateful to be here. I'm so grateful for all of you. It's amazing to be able to stand here and to, um, well, I'll just put it this way. When I was in middle school and high school, we loved to give my dad a hard time because he cried just about every time he would talk in church. And uh, you probably have seen that in any time he's come up here to talk. And as I was sitting there thinking about getting up here and preaching, I started to cry and I thought, I've become my father. I'm my dad. It's going to be hard for me to make it through this sermon without crying because I'm so moved and so deeply filled with gratitude to be here. I'm grateful that this is the congregation that raised me, that birthed me, that taught me to know and love Jesus. I'm thankful that as I look out, I see some of my Sunday school teachers and some of my Christian school teachers and some of my childhood friends and some of the people who taught me catechism and some of the people who were my youth group leaders. It's, uh, you know, it's hard to ever come back when you've become a pastor. It's hard to come back to the church of your youth because you're preaching every Sunday. And so I haven't been here in such a long time, and I see so many new faces, and I hope I get to meet you. I see so many familiar faces, and I just want to know how grateful I am for you. I also see some people that we have sent up from Orland Park Christian Reformed Church. We've sent you some of our our best, I've got to tell you, and I'm a little bit jealous, and I'm glad that they have found a church home here, and I'm grateful, so grateful for the fact that I get to bring God's Word today. We're going to be taking a look at Acts chapter 9 together today. Acts chapter 9, and so if you would turn there with me. Um, we're going to be taking a look at the conversion of Saul. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 31. This is a, um, a potent story that sort of shifts the book of Acts up to this point, and for a little bit afterwards, we're going to see the story of Peter, but then the majority of the book of Acts is the story of Paul, as God uses him as the great missionary of the church to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And this is the moment where we get to see him turn and trust in the Lord Jesus. It's a powerful story. So we're going to read these 31 verses. Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple 
named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he's done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him, but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you bow your head with me? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this powerful story of conversion. We rejoice to read it and to see it. We thank you for uh, the fact that you bring dead sinners to life. And we pray that in hearing this, we would rejoice in the fact that you have brought us to faith and we pray that we would be a congregation here, Brookfield CRC, that would cry out that you might claim more people for yourself and that we would see in our midst more people come from death to life, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would work in power by your Holy Spirit right now, and we pray that you would speak a word of blessing to this entire congregation 
this congregation that I love so dearly and I'm so thankful for. Now please use my words. May they bless everyone who's here and may they bring you honor and glory. We pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. I've titled this sermon, The Unlikeliest Christian. One of the things that I love to do is talk to people about how it is that they came to faith in the Lord Jesus. I love to read stories of testimonies about dramatic conversions to Christ. I was talking some years ago to a pastor that's in my classes, and he talked about how he felt as though he was the unlikeliest person to be a pastor in our classes. He talked about how he was in college, and when he was in college, he got into what he smirked and called mischief. And then he described it for a while. It was more than a mischief. Just to give you a picture, he's not allowed to go in prisons anymore by the federal government because of some of the stuff that happened while he was in college. He was like, I'm the unlikeliest pastor. He said, one point I was at a funeral service. God got a hold of me and brought me back to him and I'm a preacher, but I got to tell you, it's unlikely. I love stories like that. I was reading earlier this week testimonies about Christians in the Middle East. There was one which uh, talked about somebody that they called Farhad. They changed his name for the protection of this particular individual, and he talked about how he would mock and make death threats to missionaries that were in his region until one day he was in trouble and one of those missionaries came and gave him a Bible and he was drawn to trust in the Lord Jesus. An unlikely story of conversion. A beautiful story of conversion. God's power, you see, is so great that he is able to save the unlikeliest sinner. And really, there was no sinner more unlikely to become a Christian than our boy Saul. You and I know that God saves sinners, but Saul didn't see himself as a sinner. Saul saw himself as righteous and as zealous for righteousness. Verses 1 and 2 tell us that Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, and he goes to the high priest and that he gives him letters for the synagogues in Damascus so that Saul can go and find people belonging to the way and bring them bound to Jerusalem so that they could be thrown in prison and perhaps put to death. Saul had been the one approving of the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Saul was leading the great persecution of Christians in Jerusalem, according to Acts 8.3. And Saul would later say in his letter to the Galatian church that he was intending to destroy the church of God. Saul thought that Christianity was blasphemy. Saul thought that Christianity was the worship of a mere human being, a mere man. And so Saul was zealous to follow the tradition of his Jewish forefathers and to persecute the church. But again, it was because this is what he believed the righteous, God-honoring thing was to do. He wanted to be like the sons of Levi who killed 3,000 of their brothers who had worshipped the golden calf. He wanted to have the zeal of Phineas, the priest, who had run his spear through the Israelite man and Midianite woman and so turned the anger of the Lord away from the Israelites who had been indulging in sexual immorality with Moabite women. Saul did not believe himself to be a sinner. In fact, he would later say that his righteousness in accord with the law was unmatched. And this is what would make him the unlikeliest Christian because his passion for the ways of his ancestors, his passion for righteousness and observance of the law, his passion for truth, 
But here is the good news for all of us today. God is able to save the unlikeliest sinners and make the unlikeliest Christians. And so let's take a look at the three different sections in this particular text. You can see there are three different parts of the text which focus on different characters. We're going to take a look at an unlikely conversion in verses 3 through 9. We're going to see an unlikely commission in verses 10 through 19, and we're going to conclude by seeing an unlikely mission. And as we wrap up, we're going to take a look at verse 31 and hopefully be encouraged by the advancement of the church that we're told about there. So let's start with an unlikely conversion. This conversion is unlikely. Paul, Saul, who will become Paul, Saul sees the Lord of glory, the risen Christ, part of what makes this so unlikely. Take a look at verses 3 through 5 with me. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. One pastor, a friend of mine, Chris Spano, invites us to notice a few things. Notice that Saul comes face to face with God here, and contrary to Saul's deepest convictions, he sees the glory of God, whom he claims to worship, in the face of Jesus Christ, whom he zealously hates. We know this because of the background of the Old Testament. The light from heaven, all throughout the Old Testament, is the light of God's glory, a visible revelation of who God is. Whenever people see the glory of God, whenever the Lord appears to people, they fall to the ground. And that's what Saul does here when he sees the light of Jesus Christ. This would be our response too. You see, Jesus is, is so glorious that if any one of us were to encounter him, whether it be on a road to Damascus or on the road back home after church today, if we were to encounter his glory, we would fall to the ground. That's how great he is. And often when God speaks to people, He says their name twice, and he does that here, Saul, Saul. And not only that, but God reveals his divine name, I am, a verbal revelation of who God is. And when people encounter God, they rightly and reverently call him Lord, which is the Greek transliteration or translation of the Old Testament spelling of the divine name. And that's what Saul does here. Who are you, Lord, he says. And here's the point. Saul had always known what the Bible says. He knew it exceedingly well. As a person who had graduated from the schools that he did, he would have been somebody who would have had the entirety of the Hebrew Bible, the entirety of the Old Testament memorized. He knew what it said. He knew all the pieces of the puzzle. But in a flash on the road to Damascus, Saul finally saw what the Bible means. To quote Luke, who wrote this book of Acts at the end of his gospel, he finally understood that all of the scriptures are testifying about Jesus. The whole thing, from the very beginning to the very end, is all about Jesus. And Saul, who had known the scriptures so well as he encounters the risen Christ, realizes that this is true. All of the Bible is about Jesus. In an instant, Saul realizes it. The pieces together come Uh, form a picture of Jesus, the Son of God in the flesh, the long-awaited Messiah. Saul suddenly knew that the way to worship God was to worship Jesus, the same Jesus that he had ignorantly been persecuting. The other thing that you should notice is that Saul 
hears Jesus say, why are you persecuting me? Saul had been persecuting the church, but Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? The church is the body of Christ, and so to persecute the church is to persecute Christ. And Jesus commands Saul to get up and go into the city, and those who are along with Saul, they hear a voice, but they see nothing. Now, this is likely because the Lord has not called those others to himself. Saul had seen the blinding light of God's glory in the face of Christ Jesus, but as 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. But Saul hears and Saul sees and Saul for the first time in his life obeys Jesus. He gets up and he does what Jesus tells him to do. He goes into the city and he evidences the fact that he has been converted by the fact that he has listened to Jesus and is doing what he says. Obedience to Jesus is never the cause of conversion, but obedience to Jesus is always the result of a conversion. And so the fact that Saul has heard a command from Jesus and obeys is fruit of the fact that he now has been converted. And if you and I are truly converted, we will obey what the Lord Jesus says as well. I got to tell you, this is the hard part of being a Christian. It's all hard. It's all glory. It's all beautiful. It's all wonderful. But it's hard sometimes to be uh, given a command and need to obey. But Saul hears and obeys. Hallelujah. Saul's become converted because of a glorious conversion on the road to Damascus. The great opponent of the church has become the unlikeliest Christian. But at this point, it's worth saying that Paul's conversion is really not more unlikely than yours or mine. I mean, sure, he gets to see a light from heaven and the voice of God redirecting him, but the reality is that he was not more dead in his trespasses and sins than you and I were. There's not levels of deadness. You don't get to be more dead. When the scriptures say that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, they don't say, now there's certain folks that are really super dead. There are other folks who are just a little dead, right? They're just mostly dead, as if the Bible is a pre-princess bride saying they're just mostly dead. They can be brought back by miracle max. No, if we are dead in trespasses and sins, there's not levels of deadness. And so every Christian is the unlikeliest Christian Every conversion is glorious. Every single conversion is a miracle because every single person that comes to faith in the Lord Jesus is not simply sick because of sin. That person is dead in trespasses and sins. And witnessing the conversion of Saul to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ seeing the one who will become the greatest evangelist in the history of the church come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ should make you rejoice as you consider your own conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ. How sweet the gospel sounds to my ears, knowing that I've been brought from death to life because of the grace of Christ Jesus. Amazing grace. 
How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me and you and Paul. Because I've got a truth for you today. You are the unlikeliest Christian. I am the unlikeliest Christian. I've got to tell you all today, I'm the most unlikely Christian that I know. And the reason for that is I, I know my own heart. I may not have the zeal of pre-converted Saul, but if I don't, it's because of my own laziness and selfishness. Left to my own devices, I'm prodigious at self-justification. Apart from the work of the Lord Jesus, I'm zealous for righteousness. Apart from the cross of Jesus Christ, apart from the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, I stand before you today the unlikeliest Christian. And you know how I was converted to faith in Jesus? Well, through the through the hearing of the resurrected Christ. Paul is able to see Jesus and to hear the voice of the resurrected Christ. And the way that Saul comes from death to life is by encountering the resurrected, the risen Lord Jesus. This is the same way that any of us come to faith. If you have the privilege of being a Christian this morning, it's because you have heard the voice of the resurrected Christ. Paul would later say in his letter to the Galatians that it was before their very eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. What that likely means is that the preaching that Paul had done in the power of the Holy Spirit was so potent that it was almost as if Jesus was present, was physically present with the Galatians who had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So effective and potent was the preaching of Christ, it was as though the Galatians had seen Christ. If we are to become Christians, we need to hear the resurrected Christ. Part of why this is such a moving experience for me today to be present here is because I know that the place that I got to hear of the resurrected Christ was Brookfield Christian Reformed Church week after week after week and month after month and year after year from mentors and teachers and from Peter given Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You and I and all of our friends and neighbors, all of the people watching right now who might not yet have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can only become Christians through an encounter with the risen Christ. And so let me tell you what you already know. Continue to be devoted to Jesus. Continue to be a church that's about Jesus. Continue to be about the person and work of Jesus. Continue to be about the ways of Jesus. And let me tell you what Acts 9 tells us and what we celebrated just a week ago. Jesus is alive. Jesus shed his blood on the cross and then rose again, defeating death, is at the right hand of the Father, ruling over every nation and people and language and throne and authority and trusting in him, giving your allegiance to him is the only way to worship God. Trust Christ. Trust Christ. 
Then the location shifts in the text, and we're given an unlikely commission. The text suddenly places us in Damascus and tells us of another disciple named Ananias, and Ananias is given the task of healing Paul's blindness and giving Saul his commission. The Lord tells Ananias that Saul is there praying. He's likely fasting as well, since verse 8 tells us that for three days he neither ate nor drank, and Ananias is understandably concerned about this task that the Lord has given to him. Saul's done substantial evil to the followers of the Lord Jesus. Ananias knew that he had letters giving him authority to bind Christians and to throw them into prison and likely make them to meet the same end as Stephen. God, Ananias wonders, why would you have me go to this evil man? Why would you have me go to this wicked persecutor of your body? But God tells him not to worry, for the Lord has an unlikely commission for Saul. Saul's going to be the chosen instrument of the Lord to take the name of Jesus before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Christ Jesus will show Saul just how much he will join his suffering to the suffering of the Lord Jesus. And this unlikely commission continues the beautiful expansion that's been present throughout the entirety of the book of Acts. The gospel has been working its way through Jerusalem. It's made its way to Samaria, where Simon the magician believed. It's made its way to Africa through the witness of Philip, explaining that Isaiah was about Jesus to the Ethiopian eunuch. Now it will go to the Gentiles. And the chosen instrument of the Lord is the unlikeliest instrument to take the gospel message to the Gentiles. The church's chief persecutor will now become its gospel minister. This message to the Gentiles will begin as Peter takes the message to Cornelius, and then Saul will become a missionary to Jews and Gentiles to the ends of the earth. Here's how unlikely this commission is. So not only is this conversion unlikely, this commission is unlikely, because so Gentiles would have been described as, as faithful, uh, by faithful rabbis of this particular tradition as dogs. It was a, a handy, a useful word that would have been used thrown around to describe Gentiles. You see, dogs were these mangy mutts, these mongrels that would wander from village to village, and anyone that grew, that came near to one of these dogs would become unclean, and so the way that Jewish rabbis would describe Gentiles was as dogs, a reminder of the people of Israel to keep themselves from these Gentile dogs. Saul would have been one of these chief promoters of this purity doctrine of keeping himself away from these Gentile dogs, and what the Lord comes and says to him is, hey, your commission is going to be to Gentiles. Isn't God amazing? Isn't God amazing? Only God can take his fiercest enemies and make them his most committed servants. Only God can take an individual that would not have even associated with Gentiles and give him the task of being the minister to the Gentiles. Oh, I love the way that God works. I love the way that God operates. Only God can so, clean, so completely transform someone like Saul, or you, or me. And Ananias lays his hands on Saul and says, the Lord has sent me that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And something like scales falls off Saul's eyes, symbolizing what's happened to him. Spiritually, he once was lost, but now is found. He once was blind, but now he sees. 
and he confirms his conversion with a baptism. And he takes food and is strengthened for an unlikely mission. And, and this is the way that the passage comes to an end. Saul begins proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue, saying that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah. This mission is so unlikely that it begins to confound those people who had been his friends. Wait, isn't this guy supposed to be arresting these Christians and bringing them to the chief priests? Verse 21, he's starting to sound an awful lot like them. And surprise, surprise, after Saul preaches for a while, the Jewish religious leaders start to plot his death. The great persecutor will now be persecuted. I will show him how much he will suffer for my name, says the Lord. And this is actually to be expected. I, I told you about the testimony that I read earlier this week at the beginning of the sermon. This man called Farhad had uh, come to faith in Jesus. He had been a persecutor of missionaries, and he said that as soon as he himself became a Christian, he himself started experiencing that same persecution that he used to visit on other people. Start following Jesus and expect to be persecuted. Evil hates the counter-witness of truth. Evil will always seek to destroy it to kill it. That's why Jesus was put to death. The darkness hates the light. Expect to be opposed if you tell the truth, and tell the truth anyway. Expect to be persecuted in ways large and small if you're devoted to Jesus, and be devoted to Jesus anyway. And this unlikely mission creates some new unlikely friends. Verse 26 tells us that Paul preaches in Jerusalem and that the disciples were afraid of him and Barnabas has to take him and bring him to the disciples. I got to tell you, I get the fear of the disciples at this point. I mean, if there was somebody, you know, that we knew of here who had been persecuting Christians here in Brookfield, we knew he was going to head into Milwaukee because he was planning to to kill Chris Gansky and the council there, and then he wanted to come and meet back here at Brookfield CRC, I would have been like, I would advise you against taking that meeting. And the disciples are like, you know what, we're, gonna take, we're not going to take this meeting from this persecutor. I mean, we know that he's been trying to put people to death. I think we're going to pass on this one. And Barnabas, and the son of encouragement, has to, has to force it to happen. It's beautiful that it ends up taking place, right? That Saul stands before these now brothers, these ones that he had been persecuting and opposing, and they together talk about their shared trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a reminder that what is fundamentally necessary for fellowship is a common trust in the Lord Jesus, something that the disciples and Saul now had in common. And as he preaches to the Greeks, the Greeks now try to kill him, and he's sent by the disciples to Tarsus to continue the commission given to him by God. The unlikeliest Christian, now in the unlikeliest mission, after the unlikeliest commission from a Savior who does the unlikeliest things, like rise from the dead. And as we conclude, don't miss the end of this particular passage. Don't miss verse 31. Let me read it for you. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. God's power cannot be stopped. His church will spread 
Already in this particular text, the church has spread through Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. It's about to go to the ends of the earth. And because it is spirit-empowered, and because it's governed by the risen and ascended Lord, it will never stop. Any who oppose the church will be silenced or converted. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Christ Jesus. I hope that's an encouragement to you today. I hope that this can be an encouragement to you today, that the work that the Lord Jesus is accomplishing through Brookfield Christian Reformed Church, through His church across the globe, it won't ever be stopped or silenced as long as we commit ourselves to Him, not our own ways or plans or strategies, as long as we are a people of Jesus, as long as we are a people committed to the risen and ascended Lord, as long as we have given ourselves to Him, We, that is the church, that's the church as it stands through time, we will never be defeated. Right now, it seems like the news is telling us that the church is in retreat. I saw saw that for the first time in recorded history, Pew reports that less than 50% of Americans are members at a church. In just 1999, it was 70% of Americans. This year, it was 47% of Americans. That is a precipitous decline. That is a precipitous decline. I read stuff like that, and I'm like, what is going to happen? Ah, in those times, I need Acts 9.31. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Church membership has declined in this country over the course of the last 22 years substantially, but Jesus has not gone back into the tomb. There are developments and changes in the world that we can see that might might make us fearful, but Jesus is still at the right hand of the Father. And because of that, the church's work will never end. Never, never, never. The church shall never perish says the great hymn, the church is one foundation, her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end, though there be those that hate her, and false sons in her pale against a foe or traitor, she ever shall prevail. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We rejoice today to see the conversion of Saul, the unlikeliest Christian. We pray that we would realize how unlikely and beautiful it is that you have drawn us from death to life, and we pray that we might rejoice in that today and always. We pray that you might encourage this congregation, Brookfield Christian Reformed Church, that the Holy Spirit is here present, and so her labor is not in vain. You will continue to make use of her to your ends and purposes, and this will always be the case so long as this is a church that is grounded upon Jesus and following the risen and the ascended Lord. So give us rejoicing today. Give us trust today. Give us faith today. I pray for those that might be watching right now that don't yet trust in you, that they might encounter the risen Christ and believe. And we pray that we would see your power to make dead sinners alive and rejoice in who you are. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus.
Amen.